everyone, it's Sarah Edwards here and we are going to talk about July 2022's papers. With me I've got... It's Rick Body here, hi. Hello, so um, we've got a, let's go smorgasbord, because I love that word, of papers to talk about uh, today. Everything from psychiatric illness through to cardiac stuff. And it's great, obviously, with Rick with his um, cardiac hat on, some pre-hospital trauma stuff, and then some random papers at the end just to tie everything up and just to keep our topics broad. So I'm going to start with one paper talking about length of stay with patients for psychiatric illness. Now, being emergency medicine doctors that we are, this is something that we see quite a lot of. And this study titled The Association of Emergency Department Boarding Times on the Hospital Length of Stay with Patients with Psychiatric Illness by Lane et al. was conducted in Canada. And essentially what they did, they did a retrospective review looking at um, psychiatric admissions to the emergency department between April 2014 and uh, March 2018. They essentially found a total of nearly 19, just over 19,000 admissions and 14,000 of these were unique. They had an average length of boarding time or stay within the department of 14 hours, with the longest being up to 186 hours within the emergency department. They also found that the longer that the patient stayed, so i.e. if you were sort of approaching 12, 13, 14 hours within the department, you had a higher rate of needing to be admitted You also had a higher incidence of needing an antipsychotic or needing sedation versus those that were able to be discharged or weren't in the department as long. And um, not unsurprisingly, basically most patients who had the the, the longer the waiting time within the department, particularly over that 14 hours, as I was saying before, almost all of those, nearly 90% of those ended up getting admitted to a psychiatric um, institution or such like. So I think the bottom line is, you know, this paper shows that in this large cohort study over nearly four years shows that actually there's increased probability with length of stay within the emergency department with a psychiatric illness that you're more likely to get admitted. But not only that, you're more likely to need sedation and antipsychotic and probably fits with my experience within the emergency department within the UK. I don't know about what you think about this paper, Rick. Yeah, I totally agree. So first of all, I'm quite amazed at the length of stay there. I mean, the longest length of stay that you said was 186 hours, which is nearly eight days in an emergency department with a mental health problem that I was presenting acutely. I mean, that's just horrendous. I mean, enough said. You've convinced me already that there's a big problem. Before we look at the associations with all of the different problems that we've seen, absolutely no surprising. It's a really, really important issue to cover. And we've just got to have better systems because it's terrible for people's mental health to be staying in an emergency department. Never mind for eight days, even for 12 hours is bad enough for people with mental health problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm not hugely familiar with how the Canadian system works. But from a UK standpoint, you know, I know from my experience that I've been seeing patients with mental health issues waiting several days to get admitted um, due to waiting beds. And as you say, it's just awful. The emergency department is not the best place for these patients. What I don't know with this paper, and I don't know how the Canadian system works, is how their sectioning works or anything like that. So it's it's difficult perhaps to compare it. But I think the bottom line is that the fact that the longer you're in the department, the more likely you're going to get admitted. 
you know, probably fits with our general experience as well within the UK. Yeah, absolutely. So Ellen Weber, our editor-in-chief, has written a really nice editorial about this article, which I can just pull out the key points from. It's well worth a read, actually, from Ellen Weber. And I like the title. It says, when a study doesn't show what you hoped for. And Ellen's point, I think, here was that um, we all know in emergency medicine, this is a big problem. Our patients with mental health crises are staying in the ED for, for too long. They're boarding, waiting for beds when there aren't any. Uh, so I guess what we would hope as emergency physicians is that we'd see some really dramatic associations that will convince policymakers that things really need to change. And I guess Ellen's point was that in this study, they showed a difference in overall length of stay for patients who were boarded in the ED compared to patients who didn't have to be boarded in the ED. But the difference was only very small. So the difference of only 14 minutes in overall length of stay. So when you're talking about length of stay of, of you know, many days, actually 14 minutes is not going to make a big difference. So that's Ellen's point is, you know, that's not the finding that we wanted really to try and convince policymakers that we need to change things. However, that's not really the end of the story. I think that's only one outcome that we'd look at. I think that patient experience needs to be looked at and overall quality of care. Those things are, are important. Ellen pointed out, though, that, you know, despite the fact that we only showed a 14 minute difference in overall length of stay, we have a responsibility to publish the findings. And it was nice to hear that because I think sometimes you hear a lot about journals choosing papers with positive findings rather and perhaps not being so keen on publishing things with negative findings. Uh, and here we published something in the EMJ that probably isn't fit with what we all thought it would in terms of the length of stay especially but she felt that we you know we have a responsibility to publish this paper and I think that's very very true she also discussed some other issues like you know our, our responsibility to look after the patients while they're in the ED we can't just wash our hands of them we've got to to provide some care to those patients they had quite high acuity um, so it's well worth a, a read to get Ellen's perspective on this uh, important matter as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, she's hit the nail on the head. I think it's really good that we're publishing papers that aren't showing the results that we expect. Um, so our next little section really is around sort of chest pain and syncope. And I think you're going to kick us off with one about syncope. Yeah, that's right. So this is from uh, some colleagues in Canada. And they've, they derived the Canadian syncope risk score, CSRS. They had a validation, a derivation study and a validation study some time ago. Really nice piece of work. And here in the EMJ, what they've done is they've taken that a little bit of a step further and produced a personalized decision aid. So this is quite close to my heart because that's exactly what we've done when we developed the TMAX decision aid for patients with suspected acute coronary syndromes. We don't just assign patients to risk groups and rule in and rule out the diagnosis, but we also calculate the probability that they have an acute coronary syndrome. And that's what the Canadian authors have done with the Canadian syncope risk score here. So they've taken the cohorts that we use to derive and validate that prediction model. They've rerun logistic regression analyses uh, with the predictors that were in the Canadian syncope risk score model originally. And they've used it to develop a model that can calculate the probability that patients will have a serious untoward event after they leave the emergency department. So it's an unexpected event. Uh, and so their outcome was similar to what they used in the uh, original studies. It was a composite. So you had arrhythmic outcomes where they defined the arrhythmias that might be clinically important and then non-arrhythmic outcomes that would be important for patients like uh, having a myocardial infarction or an aortic dissection. 
So quite a big study. I think there were over 8,000 patients in the study uh, altogether. And um, the authors have then had a look to see how well calibrated this model is and how good it is at discriminating between people who have an untoward event and people who don't. So those are the two really important things when you have a prediction model. Is it calibrated and, and does it discriminate? So we're used to discrimination. I think we talked about this on a previous podcast, didn't we? That's diagnostic accuracy. So we think about sensitivity, specificity. Calibration is less familiar to us. But this is really important for this one because they're giving us a probability of an untoward event. And we want to know if, they, if the probability is 6%, how close is it really to 6%? If it says 93%, how close is it to 93%? And the good news was that they got a really well-calibrated model so you measure calibration with the slope, and the slope of the so the curve has to be one, which means that you know if you say six percent, it is six percent, and the slope of this curve was one. So they've got a really nice model, and there's an output of this. They've got an online calculator, so you can go and visit it. The links to there to the website, you can plug in your data for the Canadian syncope risk score, and it gives you a percentage probability. You can then link to some infographics that you can use to communicate that with patients and engage in shared decision making. And that's exactly what we've done with chest pain as well. So it's, we're all on the same page on this one. I think it's really got a, a big future. So really nice piece of work. One thing I would really liked to see was the formula to try and calculate probability so we can do it ourselves and program it into our electronic patient records. That we didn't get the formula, so it's a little bit of a black box. And we have to go to their website to calculate the probability. But uh, let's not uh, take away from the work. It's, it's really nice. And I guess, you know, thinking about this, you know, how do you think this would change your practice, Rick? Well, I do think that it's very important to uh, start thinking about shared decision making. Who decides whether the patient can go, should go home or not? At the moment, we're taking that. If we're going to use the Canadian syncope risk score and we know that there's a chance that actually some of the patients we discharge will develop a serious untoward event in the near future. Well, shouldn't we be communicating that with patients and engage, allowing them to have input into the decision-making process, appreciating what the alternatives were, understanding why we've made our decision like we have, and also giving input into it so they can uh, tell us about their preferences, their values. And in order to do that properly, we have to give them a realistic idea of their individual risk. This allows us to do that, so I really like it. Yeah, no, again, it's all about that shared decision making and, you know, giving people choice. And actually what we think is right for a patient sometimes isn't right for them. But as long as they've got the information and the capacity to do that, then that's that's their decision to make, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. We, I mean, and shared decision making isn't about devolving all responsibility from ourselves. It's about informing the patient mm. about the, the risks of each different approach giving them a recommendation so what we would recommend that we go we go forward with and why but saying well there are alternatives this is why i selected the one this is why i recommend the one that i'm recommending but let's talk about the alternatives and the relative merits of each approach and actually some people say that uh, are worried that they might leave you subject to increased medical legal risk if you allow people to go home knowing that they're at risk Actually, the converse is probably true because if they're fully informed and engaged in that process, they understood the risks, they bought into the approach that we're taking and were aware of the alternatives. 
Yeah, and this probably leads on nicely to the next paper that I'm going to talk a little bit about, which is about telephone triage of young adults with chest pain. And this paper is looking at a population analysis of the NHS 24 calls in a Scottish unscheduled care. And for those listeners who aren't based within the UK, essentially there's NHS 111 or NHS 24. And it's basically a you phone up, you've got your health query out of hours and um, they go through a system of things and they advise you, you know, do you go to see the doctor out of hours? Do you go to A&E? Can you wait till the morning? Maybe you've got a sore tooth and they can book you an out of hours emergency dental appointment, that sort of thing. So this paper, I think, again, uh, did an amazing job at looking at nearly uh, two years worth of um, triage calls that occurred to NHS Scotland 24 um, between January 2015 and uh, December 2017. There were 102,000 CUPs identified, which is these continuous urgent care pathways. Um, Staggeringly, there's uh, 1,200 different variants of how these pathways work. So what that means is there's 1,200 different ways that you can interact with the healthcare system, which just is astonishing. And as you know, seasoned NHS people, I read that and was like, goodness me, that's very complicated. No wonder sometimes our patients don't know. So from that, the most popular when people phoned up, they ended up at out of hours. And uh, that was about sort of nearly 38% of people spoke to out of hours. Of the whole population that rang up, about 9% of them, so about 9,000 people ended up needing a hospital admission. And of that, 3,000 of them ended up with having an acute serious diagnosis. And the most common diagnosis was asthma. And bearing in mind that these are 15 to 34-year-olds that are ringing up the NHS service. The bit that I was quite interested in as well was about those that were advised self-care. So about 8%, so around 8,500 of the patients that rung up were advised self-care. And from that, 73 or about 1% ended up needing hospital admission, which, as I'm sure we're going to talk about, looks at was that good advice and, and things like that. And Interestingly, when we were talking about, you know, how many different combinations of services people can get involved with, the longest number or the the greatest number of contacts in a single session is 62. So one person had 62 encounters within the NHS. And I was sat here reading the paper going, I'm not entirely sure how I could think of 62 different ways, but this is somebody's rang up, they've been given advice, and then they've gone through from one to the other, to the other, to the other, to the other, and and then found their outcome. So what does all this mean? So in conclusion, so chest pain triage in this group of patients in the Scottish NHS 24 um, system between these sort of 14 to 34-year-olds, one in 40 of them were by young people, about... 8.2% of them were discharged just straight off the phone. Of all the population that were seen, about 8%, nearly 9% of them ended up needing admission to hospital. And also what I've clearly highlighted here as well is that there's hugely complex pathways within the NHS for patients to go under, under and through. 
So, Rick, what do you think? Well, I think this is really amazing, fascinating piece. I mean, some of those statistics are absolutely incredible, Sarah. 62 engagement to, to get healthcare is it just astounding. Clearly, we need to do better. Um, I was quite interested in the sort of prevalence of serious diagnoses among the patients as well, uh, acute asthma unspecified being the most common. Now, we all worry about myocardial infarction in patients who call up with chest pain. And the prevalence of myocardial infarction in these young adults, 15 to 34, was 0.1%, in fact. So not a big problem for, among this cohort. And we know it is a serious issue, actually. Uh, I've done some work with NHS 111 and 999 and actually been involved in defining the pathways that we use to triage patients who call uh, for help with chest pain. And we do. I know we have a big problem with uh, over-triage of chest pain, in fact. They recognise that. But making little tweaks to the pathway can have massive effects because there are su- there's such a large number of people calling for help. So clearly highlights uh, some areas for future work to try and reduce over triage and also provide better pathways for people to get early access to care without having to call 62 times. Yeah, and I think it's important to note probably most people had one to four encounter, you know, sort of consecutive encounters through the healthcare system. That was most people, but even four is quite a lot, or five, but 62. I'm not entirely sure how that happened. I'd love to know. And if the authors want to get in touch, please do. That would be amazing. So you've got the next two papers sort of carrying on with our sort of chest pain theme. Yeah, that's right. So the first one uh, is quite close to my heart, actually, because it validates a decision aid that we developed called HEMAX, the History and ECG Manchester ACS decision aid. And it also validates a very similar decision aid called HEA. So that's the heart score without the T. And that means that we're not using troponin testing. So the point of this was to look at two decision aids, HEMAX and HEA, which can risk stratify patients with suspected cardiac chest pain in the emergency department using only the history and the ECG, no troponin testing whatsoever. That would be really good for us because we could apply that triage at the front door and if we could find a group of patients who can go straight home with no tests very safely, it's really good for them. They avoid the really long waits in the emergency department that we're seeing right now. And it's really good for the emergency department too because we reduce crowding. Question is, can you do it? So both of these scores have been looked at before and validated and they've performed pretty well. Now we've got an analysis from Bristol led by uh, Fraser Todd, uh, which looked at patients in the loaded trial. So this was a randomised controlled trial to see if we could get more people safely home if their troponin's below the limit of detection. So this trial included people who've got low-risk chest pain. It's important to note that because actually these decision aids were, were derived by use in all patients with chest pain. These are specifically patients with low-risk chest pain. So they're normal ECGs and clinicians probably enrolled in one that were at the lower end of, of the risk spectrum. Uh, they had 629 patients. The data were collected for both risk scores and then they looked at whether they developed a major adverse cardiac event within 30 days. And both scores performed pretty well. So HEMAX had a sensitivity of 100%. HEAR had a score, a sensitivity of 97.6% and a cutoff of less than two. So that was, that's a, you know, a difference, but uh, not statistically significant. The sample is not, not big enough to know if that's a, a, a true difference or if it's just by chance. HEMAX ruled out 13.5% of patients. HEAR ruled out more at 28.7%. So it's, it's really important work. I think you know, the confidence intervals are a little wide uh, to, to take this by itself, but it's really uh, important evidence that feeds into an overall picture of how these decision aids 
are working. We use the HEMAX decision aid in practice, but we don't use it to send people home. We use it to make triage decisions and we can send people to different areas if we want to. I'm not sure the uptake's fantastic, but it is there and it's available for use at triage. And I really like it because it helps me to stream patients to areas very, very quickly and help them to avoid sitting in a very crowded, unpleasant waiting area for a very long time. Uh, there were a few limitations. Over 40% of the patients went home after a single troponin test, so they maybe didn't have the full reference standard uh, for acute myocardial infarction. Uh, and obviously the low-risk patients, so we don't have um, anyone with ECG scheme yet. The authors looked at whether the individual components of the risk scores were predictive. I'd slightly disagree with the conclusions on this one, because um, they said that the the HEMAX risk variables were poor predictors of major adverse cardiac events. But if you actually look at them, they're all consistently, they've got an odds ratio of about four, all of them consistently through the, through the board. But the confidence intervals for some of them cross one. And that means I think that the prevalence of those outcomes or variables is a little low for some patients, like hypotension, for example. And that's probably because you've got a slightly lower risk cohort than we used to originally derive and validate that model. So, but I, so I disagree that they're poor predictors. I just say it was an underpowered sample to detect the, the, the effect size that we want. But the risk factors in the heart score or the HIR score were, were predicted apart from diabetes. So uh, that's, you know, more evidence about risk factors predicting major adverse cardiac events in the emergency department because it's not absolutely clear that they're strong predictors, but they were in this. So that was the validation of HIR and um, HEMAX which was uh, very nice to see in a very nice paper. Then we've got a piece on the acceptable risk of major adverse cardiac events after a, uh, after emergency department discharge. So we talked about this a little bit when we were discussing shared decision-making for syncope. And it's also really important for patients with chest pain. So if we're going to send people home, having ruled out an acute myocardial infarction very quickly, we know that there's some risk of them developing a major adverse cardiac event. But What's, what's an acceptable risk and who should decide? Well, there was an international survey of emergency physicians some years ago led by Martin Fenn in New Zealand. And emergency physicians were actually quite risk averse. Only 40% of them would accept a 1% risk of major adverse cardiac events at 30 days. And you wouldn't reach a majority until you went to below a one in a thousand risk. So 99.9% negative predictive value. That's that's huge. You know? um, no, no, no diagnostic test achieves that. So maybe we're just very risk averse. The, the point is perhaps we take a cumulative risk. We see lots of patients. We take those small risks time and time again. So even a tiny risk is too much for us. I was always interested in knowing what patients thought. And that's what Jamie Greenslade and the colleagues have uh, looked at in this study, where they've done a cross-sectional survey of 125 patients. Would patients be willing to accept more risk because it tends to be a one-off risk for them? Uh, and therefore, you know, they are more pragmatic and perhaps aren't keen to be in the emergency department. So the, question, the patients completed a questionnaire. They had a scenario which presented, you know, they may be discharged and there's a 2% risk of major adverse cardiac events and asked them, you know, how do you feel about that and what's an acceptable risk? So the vast majority, 81% of patients, did want to be involved in decisions about their care. So that's advocating for shared decision-making. So that goes with what we said earlier. However... 51% of patients would only be willing to be discharged if their risk of a major adverse cardiac event within 30 days was less than 0.1%. So they were very like the emergency physicians, where they were risk averse, just like us, 
only 10% were willing to be discharged if there was a 2% risk. So it hasn't really helped us out in that way. And that, uh, you know, patients and emergency physicians both expect an unattainable incidence of major adverse cardiac events uh, at 30 days. The, the alternative, of course, is to keep everybody in uh, and admit them and do lots and lots of tests and probably never send them home because there's probably never going to be less than 0.1% risk. So maybe we shouldn't have asked either patients or doctors, but it's very interesting. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, what can you say to that, really? <laughs> um, I think it's it's really interesting, the patient perspective, and it's really interesting that it marries us as emergency physician perspective. But again, as you say, it's completely unrealistic because nothing is perfect in life. And I was just thinking back to the paper that you discussed before about the Hemax and stuff and about the use in triage and low-risk chest pain. I think it would be lovely to see that tested more formally and, and and a trial done with testing it at triage because I think particularly given what we discussed with the NHS 24 call system and low risk chest pain, that would be great to see that. And then going back to the patient perspective, I think if you were to then give them the reality of that's fine, we don't think you're high risk, we can discharge you. But the reality is, if you don't want any risk, you'd have to be in hospital for five days or six days having all this test. I think the reality of that to people would be a bit unrealistic as well. So I think it's interesting. I do think it's right to ask the question. I just think it wasn't the result that we were expecting. I think you're absolutely right. And so you, I think you hit the nail on the head in that, you know, we, we need to ask them which of the alternatives they want. Do you want to stay in hospital and have lots and lots of tests with only a small chance of finding anything and a fairly uh, significant chance of harm? Or, or, or do you want to go home with, with X percent risk of a major adverse cardiac event? Maybe that's the way we should be going about it next. Really interesting work. I reviewed it. And I, I'm, going to, I'm going to be honest, I suggested no revisions, which I've never done before because I liked it so much. It was a really good, good, good article. Oh, that's good. No, that's really good. And then I'm just going to talk briefly about a paper about Reboa. So needs assessment of resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, so Reboa, in patients with major hemorrhage, a cross-sectional study. And this is by our uh, Norwegian colleagues, uh, Godo et al., Um, Essentially, what they did uh, using their blood transfusion database was a retrospective analysis uh, looking back over Norwegian trauma registry over a year, so 2017 to 2018. And they were trying to identify patients who could have been eligible for Reboa. And they use Reboa in sort of the typical sort of traumatic scenarios that you'd expect. So things like liver, kidney, spleen injuries, pelvic vessels, you know, with your high grade injuries. And then the non-traumatic um, things like rupture AAA, postpartum hemorrhage, GI hemorrhage, those sort of things, and some cancer. Um, and what they identified, they, there were 804 patients that they felt were eligible for inclusion. So I met that they had, you know, traumatic or non-traumatic pathology that could have met that. 53 patients of those 804 were regarded as potentially Reboa eligible. And of those actual 53 patients, actually 19 of them received Reboa. What's interesting is that 44 of those patients who could have had Reboa, uh, so 83%, had a non-traumatic etiology, and most were treated in a tertiary care centre. 
And the most common reason that they could have had Reboa was actually for postpartum hemorrhage. And, and why this is important, and this paper is perhaps different to other papers that have been about Reboa, is actually there is probably a huge population of people that we could be using Reboa in that aren't traumatic. So again, you know, the patients that actually went on to Reboa um, in this study were traumatic patients predominantly, but there are eligible patients that could have had Reboa that were non-traumatic. So things like postpartum hemorrhage being the most common cause. And I think that's really interesting and very different to what some of the papers have said before, because I think predominantly my understanding of Reboa, I'd never really thought about not using it in a non-traumatic setting. I don't know about you. You may have more experience with Reboa than I do, Rick. Well, no, actually. We knew we were uh, hopefully going to be part of a, the trial that Kareem Brohe was running on Reboa for major trauma. But we had such a small number of eligible patients that uh, we didn't take part in the trial ultimately. This work's really important because it just quantifies how many patients might benefit from the technology if we can prove that it's effective. The thing is, proving you know the number of eligible patients is the first step, but then we've got to prove the benefit of using Reboa. While it's a really exciting treatment, and it would be really nice to do something so hands-on in the emergency department if it really does save lives. There's also the potential to cause harm with it. And there are alternative approaches that we might use for some of these patients. So there's, I think there's, there's still a pretty long journey to go for us to know that actually the Reboa in the emergency department is beneficial for our patients, particularly those non-traumatic causes. Yeah, and especially I think uh, the postpartum hemorrhages, you know, I've seen some nasty postpartum hemorrhages, as I'm sure you have over the years. And actually, that would be phenomenally useful in those situations, especially for our obstetric colleagues, I would imagine. Moving on to sort of more trauma type stuff, um, you've got a paper on traumatic brain injury. Yeah, that's right. It's actually on paediatric traumatic brain injury as well. So this paper is looking at hemodynamic profiles and their association with poor neurological outcome in children with uh, traumatic brain injury. So it's a secondary analysis from a data set that had already been collected. So it's a retrospective study, and they included 152 children who all had traumatic brain injury with CT brain abnormalities. And they were looking at hemodynamic parameters, so blood pressure, uh, and they were looking at uh, GCS, for example, to see if they had an association with a poor neurological outcome. Now, they they did find some associations. So if you take things, the hemodynamic parameters by themselves, the systolic blood pressure and the diastolic blood pressure both had an association with poor outcome and quite important relationships as well. The odds ratio for systolic hypotension was 11.44. So that means the odds of having a poor neurological outcome were 11 times as high for people who had systolic hypotension and they were 15 times as high for diastolic hypotension. Uh, GCS was similar. If your GCS is less than eight, that was similarly predictive of a poor neurological outcome. I guess there's no surprise in that. It was helpful then to see a multivariate analysis where you see how those variables interact and which ones are independently predictive. Of those, in fact, systolic blood pressure came out as the, the main predictor there. So the message is systolic hypotension in particular, or hypotension in general, is is predictive of poor neurological outcome in children with 
traumatic brain injury. And these were patients with isolated traumatic brain injury as well. So I was interested in, well, is that hypotension because they've got multi-system trauma and that accounts for the poor neurological outcome? Well, actually, I don't think it is because these had isolated uh, head injuries. What it means is we need to really pay attention to the systolic blood pressure. I think we know that in traumatic brain injury. You know, it's about your cerebral perfusion pressure. We all generally know that the difference between your, your MAP and your ICP, your intracranial pressure, is your cerebral perfusion pressure. And you need to maintain a decent cerebral perfusion pressure. It's taught in all the trauma courses. But this hammers home just how important that is. There's clear evidence for poor outcome in those children. Now, it is a small sample size. Uh, only 33 children in the sample had poor outcome. So that does mean that the multivariate analysis is a little bit limited by, um, by the underpowering. However, there were very, very clear associations. And I think it has clinical relevance for all of us that we can take home. What did you think, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just hammering home the basics, isn't it? You know, getting that systolic blood pressure right, getting all those head injury parameters correct, you know, will will serve you really well. And I think particularly, you know, as we know, children tend to not present to major trauma centres in the United Kingdom, particularly. They tend to come to their local hospital, which often isn't a major trauma centre and is definitely not a major trauma centre specialising in children. So particularly in that beginning, that process where we're identifying that traumatic brain injury before we're shipping out to these centres, you know, really just focusing on that good early intervention, hopefully can give these children a really good outcome. Definitely. And talking about getting the basics right, you've covered a paper that covers the basics of getting the, the basics right when, when we're dealing with airway management in major trauma because they looked at the risk factors and outcomes with um, unrecognised endobronchial intubation. Yeah, so as you say, this endobronchial intubation in major trauma patients, and again, I don't know about you, Rick, but this wasn't something I really thought about with intubation. I, I had to reread the title a couple of times going, endobronchial? Surely we mean, you know, esophageal. No, endobronchial is what we're talking about, so us, i.e. predominantly going down the right main bronchus. And again, it's not something that I've often thought about, but um, this is from our German colleagues who, again, uh, similar to the previous paper, did a retrospective review of um, their um, adult patients that were taken from scene of a single level one trauma centre over just over a decade worth, so from January 2008 to 2019. And they had 616 patients who were intubated during that uh, time out in the field. And of that, 26 of these patients had an endobronchial intubation on CT. What they found was that a short body height and a high body mass index were associated um, with endobronchial intubation. Why that's important is because often, you know, when there's a trauma or whatever's going on in these trauma, you know, there's lots going on. It's easy to think, well, actually, is it that they've got a pneumothorax? Is it that they've got lots of other things that could be causing challenging uh, ventilation? And actually, we probably should be considered, actually, have we put the tube down too far or have we got it down the right main bronchus? So this paper, really, really interesting, made me really reflect on, huh, intubating in trauma patients and actually, you know, remembering that you could just stick it down the right main bronchus quite easily. I don't know, what what did you think there, Rick? Yeah, really important, actually, because it's not one of the things that you worry about most when you're intubating someone. Like you said, I mean, you're most worried about intubating the esophagus and not recognising that. If you put the tube into the right main bronchus, you might think, well, no big deal. I'm just going to pull it back a little bit and it's going to be fine. But here they did talk about some quite important clinical implications of the endobronchial intubation. There's an implication that actually 
quite a few patients underwent tube thoracostomy. Yeah. Perhaps as a result of the endobronchial intubation, they hadn't recognised it, thought that there was a problem in that in that particular lung, and therefore put a drain in, and and um, and that that's a really quite significant implication. So we do have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, you know, this is rare, I suppose, but we do need to be thinking about it because a thoracostomy is quite a big intervention and leaves a big hole. Yeah, I don't think I'd fancy that one uh, unnecessarily. No, definitely not. <laughs> the next paper um, we've got is a qualitative one, which you've looked at as well, Sarah, looking at barriers and facilitators to the administration of pre tronic samic acid. Yeah, and my interest is qualitative research, actually. So, you know, I love I love these sort of papers and I've done a lot of work around qualitative research. So it was lovely to see another paper that's qualitative based. And this was looking at barriers and facilitators around the administration of pre-hospital tranexamic acid, a, a paramedic interview. And this was done in 2012 um, and it was 18 interviews with paramedics from a single EMS service and based within the UK. And what they were trying to ascertain really was the barriers and the experiences of administrating TXA at the scene or when they're out and about. What they found really after doing a sort of standard interview, semi-structured interviews, did data saturation and analysing it using thematic analysis was that barriers um, often included things such as lack of knowledge and experience with TXA, around guidelines and restrictions to how they can give the TXA, difficulty of knowing which are the right patients to give the tranexamic acid to, and sometimes just a lack of resources within the systems that they're working on. And I think, obviously, this was done a little bit a while ago, back in 2012. But I think what's really interesting, and as this system concludes, is that we really do need to make sure our paramedics are appropriately trained, that, you know, the SOPs that they're working under are really rigid and um, we need to, you know, look at this more because what we want to be, what we know with all the work now with TXA is that it does, it can in the right patient help with mortality and morbidity. Yeah, hugely important stuff. We know how effective early tranexamic acid is in major trauma. It had a number needed to treat of 67 to prevent death in the CRASH-2 trial, remember. So we've got an effective treatment. But actually, it's only effective if you give it and you give it in a timely way. And so understanding some of the barriers to giving timely TXA is, uh, is hugely important. So I think this is fantastic work. Yeah. And you've got the last but one paper that we're going to touch upon, and it's looking at cardiac arrests. Yeah, that's right. So this is, I mean, we'll touch on this one a little quickly, but it's, a, it's an interesting and important piece. Talking about the uh, development of a cardiac arrest registry between France and Canada. So it's of interest to people who do uh, research into cardiac arrest um, but, and also of interest to people who might be wanting to set registries up, particularly setting up systems across countries. So it's an interesting registry, including all patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who, well, and all people who died if they, suddenly, in fact, in fact, you know, even those with unsurvivable injuries who called for the EMS in France and Canada. So they're merging two national registries. They're collecting data as per the Udstein criteria that are internationally agreed. And they estimate that they're going to cover approximately 200,000 cases over a 10-year period. So if you read the manuscript, you'll get some really nice tips about the, you know, how they've gone about setting up governance structures, 
data collection, the nuances of that, and so on. There's an awful lot they've had to think about, and what a fantastic resource it's going to be for research into out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, I'm looking forward to seeing what that data shows. Absolutely. And that brings us on to our final paper, which you're covering, Sarah, which is on the implementation of a nurse-led alternate care site for patients with COVID-19 in Italy. Yeah, absolutely. So our Paganini, one of our Italian colleagues, has done this brilliant paper describing a uh, nurse-led alternative care site for the management of the surge of um, COVID-19 patients. And, um, you know, again, COVID-19 is still topical around the world at the moment uh, and within healthcare across the world. And essentially, they set up a nurse-led alternative care site where patients would present with symptoms suggestive of COVID-19. And provided they weren't less than four years old, they had an early warning or they didn't have an early warning score of greater than five, or they didn't uh, drop their SATs by several percent, Um, they could be seen in the um, acute, um, sorry, alternate care setting. And what would happen there is with these low-risk COVID patients, they would have their bloods done, chest x-ray, they'd have some some saturations checked, um, and then they would be discharged home at that point. And then what would happen is every four hours, one of the emergency department consultants would look at the blood results and the chest x-ray and things like that and call back the patients if there was a problem. So they had a total of 487 patients that were fully managed and of that uh, 392, so around 80%, had no abnormalities after workup and could just stay at home. 29 had to re-attend in the next 15 days and overall only 13 of them were admitted. None of these patients at 15 days had invasive ventilation. Only one needed non-invasive ventilation. So I think this is a brilliant start and system of around how you can divert those, those patients. And hopefully we won't have to do that again to the extent that we were doing it back in the original pandemic. Yeah, fingers crossed we won't. But it's really important that we learn some lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's very nice to see the innovative systems that people set up to manage it. And this sounds like a really nice idea for how we can manage a surge in acute respiratory infections as we had during those waves of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, let's hope we don't see that again this winter. Absolutely. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next month. Bye bye. Thank you. Take care.